0: Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez. The podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business.
1: And now, here is your host. This is Henry Lopez. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. My guest today is Dr. James Richardson. James, welcome to the show. Thank you, Henry, for having me. Looking forward to this conversation. How do you realize exponential growth with your consumer brand or or packaged item that, that you're gonna sell. Maybe you're a restaurant and we were just talking, James and I were talking about, you might have a, you know that sauce that you're gonna start marketing and packaging. Uh, but how do you not grow too quickly and fail? And that's something that's very counterintuitive. So Dr. James Richardson is going to share his unique insights and approach to ramping your CPG, your consumer packaged good brand. And the story of how he leveraged his PhD in anthropology to help companies achieve exponential growth. To receive more information about the How Business, including the links, the links that we'll talk about in this episode, on the show notes page, and to schedule a free coaching consultation with me, just text the word biz b i z to three one nine nine six. So, Dr. James Richardson is the founder of Premium Growth Solutions, a strategic planning consultancy for early stage consumer packaged good brands, goods brands rather. As a professionally trained cultural anthropologist turned business strategist, he has helped more than 75 CPG brands with their strategic planning, including brands owned by Coca-Cola Venturing, emerging brands, their Hershey company, General Mills, Kraft Foods, ConAgra, and Frito-Lay, as well as other emerging brands. James is the author of Ramping Your Brand, How to Ride the Killer CPG Growth Curve, the number one bestseller in business consulting category on Amazon. And he also hosts his own podcast, Startup Confidential. James lives in Tucson, Arizona. So once again, Dr. James Richardson,
0: welcome to the show. Thank you, Henry. Excited to be here.
1: Yes, looking forward to this conversation. Obviously, the thing that stood out right away as far as the journey is uh, we got to talk about you getting a PhD in
0: anthropology (laughs) and why. Uh, I asked that question many times along the way <laughs> right. but I, I'm, I was one of those very idealistic children and I wanted to be a professor I think in high school I, I'm a very stubborn person as you might imagine um, so I clung to that fantasy uh, the field became anthropology because I was really sort of fixated on religion and, and what because I'm not religious and, and why people are I mean it it, would, it was a vast series of questions for me so that's what got me into the field jumped off the moving train of the tenure track at high speed. It was painful and very lonely. (laughs) (laughs) And bruising, no doubt. Yes, and there was no support. (laughs) (laughs) Before you
1: did that, you, you actually, you were a cultural anthropologist in South India. Well, what does a
0: cultural anthropologist do? I don't know that I know what that is. I think that's a, you're the first person who's asked me that. So kudos to you. Um, so we don't dig in the dirt. Um, those are the folks on National Geographic. <laughs> so right. We rarely get invited to National Geographic <laughs> filming. Um, Cultural anthropologists embed themselves in real human communities and understand through pattern analysis and interviewing and inference and, and theory and data collection, how, those communities function, how their value systems operate, what the key debates and dilemmas are that the is fighting or wrestling with. Um, It it really is a discipline that emerged from the study of uh, tribal societies uh, around the world in the early 20th to mid-20th century. A lot of my colleagues don't do that anymore, but I did. I did, I did I embedded myself in a neighborhood, in a city in southern India, for almost three years, and who were you doing that work on behalf of? I'm curious. So the work, I mean, it was it was it was independently funded dissertation research, right? So it was purely academic. So after doing that, then the, what did you do after you got your PhD? For a couple of years, I did adjunct teaching, and I was on the tenure track application circuit, and I just I bailed pretty early because I wasn't. I was no longer committed to where the field was going,
1: and you, you talked about that in one of the episodes where you kept going from
0: one year to one year, kind of uh, assignments or, or jobs, if you will, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, the state of my field was particularly more abundant, as they say, in that they're they were overproducing PhDs at a rate at a rate that would really even mystify, you know, a luxury handbag company. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> Oh, my goodness. So, so I'm, I was part of that generation of overproduction, I guess you could call it.
1: But then uh, this organization came calling, looking for anthropologists.
0: So yeah, I had to, I, I literally, I mean, this was sort of, um, it's hard to give a rational explanation here other than that. I, I literally just systematically looked at all the non-academic opportunities and then I, I eliminated them. I landed in market research because there was a firm that advertised that they wanted ethnographers. They wanted cultural anthropologists to join. And I I had a feeling that's where I was going to end up because it allowed me to do full-time research with real human beings and then write reports. And it sounded like a modified version of being an academic. And, of course, that's what an academic wants to hear about their non-academic job (laughs) is that it won't be that different. Right. So, anyways, I got into market research, I think it was a good landing spot.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a good fit for you. And I can see it now that it makes sense that so much of what you had studied and learned applies here.
0: The first three years when I was literally, I was literally on an airplane two to three weeks out of every month. I was single. It it was as exhausting as being a sales professional. Mm Mm-hmm. And not only that, but I was I was doing fifteen hour days, driving to people's homes. We would be we would literally be deconstructing their food pantries, um, having three hour interviews, paying them money to do this. But um, so that lots of information, lots of learning. It was very exciting. We did. We were lucky because our, the first client I worked with was Whole Foods. So I ran around all over the country, going to. I went to over one hundred and twenty Whole Foods stores wow. in like thirty states, and I I didn't just go there. I did observational research on their shoppers. We walked people through the store. We went to their houses, because um, no. John Mackey and Walter Robb at the time were—they'd assembled this national chain by just buying up, yeah, por- poorly managed independents, right? I mean, there's... Uh, health foods chains in food local chains. markets. Yeah. Some yeah. of them were just like you know, totally bad, incompetent businesses, just bad news. So they they got them on a fire sale, <laughs> so,
1: right, right? You know,
0: and now they had to integrate. And they had to create a national culture. They had to have a thing that they represented. And they wanted to now, they wanted to accelerate their store building. The people who we, we found empirically that the people who complain most about the prices at Whole Foods are the people who buy a sh- giant crap ton of stuff there. Interesting. It's almost- <laughs> In other words, their most loyal people complain right. the most about the pricing. Right. The people, the, Everyone else doesn't complain because the price has alienated them. To the point where they only go once a month, so they don't. So they're very happy to buy a forty dollars cheesecake because they're only doing it once.
1: (laughs) I see, and it seems to me like the people who complain about it almost they want it to be. I guess it's kind of like it shows that they're in an elite group.
0: Well, that that was a secondary insight of my social science colleagues and I glommed onto immediately. But business people really have a hard time swallowing that kind of deep insight. You just got you you just got it, (laughs) Uh, but I. I, um, I deliver those insights to my clients now, but I've never, I was never able to deliver those to like a CMO.
1: Do they, get, do, do they get hung up in wanting to feel like their product is worth that, that there is value that they've built in that product and brand, and
0: that's why it's priced where it's priced? Well, the big companies overestimate the, the power of their brand equity. And there's a whole army of, of firms that measure that and they spend a fortune on tracking it. Mm-hmm. So that's a separate problem with big companies. They tend to believe that, you know, my, my brand. Yeah, because, it's, right. because it's big and old that it has any actual power. Mm-hmm. When what you're actually operating on is, is the worst kind of momentum at, at a behavioral level. It's I like see. easily dislodged. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> or, or it's my favorite is commodity momentum, which is sure I keep buying you because you're the cheapest garbage in a category I don't care about. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not a brand. That's just, that's just a really good sales team. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause you're always there. Getting,
1: getting that shelf space. Okay. So I get why you started premium growth solutions. Let's, let's fast forward to the book. Why did you write the book and who is it
0: for? So I wrote the book for early stage entrepreneurs at various levels, but generally, you know, I would say from zero to say 25 million, you know, which is where most people face plant. And it all comes to an end, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, especially early on in like the first half million is really, really where things get ugly um, operationally in these companies. So I wanted to write a book that would take what I had learned in the early couple years when I was out on my own working with folks, isolate the core problem that I didn't think was being discussed publicly, which could then connect to some insights I had learned over the years working for big companies. So... It was exciting for me to attack the problem. And the problem was that people uh, fundamentally, the ambitious founders, right, launch their packaged food, packaged beverage, whatever business, and they basically try to get into as many retail doors as possible. And they're always chasing more sales, more accounts, and they're surrounded by sales consultants who, who and brokers who make often a commission fee off encouraging them to do that.
1: Plus, that's what, what we're often told, though, James. Oh, Go yeah. as fast as possible. Grab as much market share as you can. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, grow it as, or you're going to get wiped out by somebody else. That That's what we're yeah. told.
0: Yeah. And I think uh, the problem is that the case study data at the category level doesn't really support any of that. I see. So I've looked in categories that had tons of venture capital and you would have come to that conclusion from the outside. And the reality is the venture funded businesses face planted, the non-funded businesses scaled. I mean, <laughs> there's no correlation between funding and scaling and succeeding. Not that I've ever seen. That's a big mm-hmm. myth. Okay. Um, it's very possible to raise $20 million and flush it all down the toilet. Mm-hmm. So for those people who are distracted by the, you know, com case studies, you know, don't listen to that stuff. Just that that's... That's Wall Street talking through Inc. Magazine, Entrepreneur Magazine to other people. That's the finance world taking over those magazines. That has nothing to do with um, the odds or what's necessary to succeed. And so that was the problem the book begins with, which was what do you do as an undercapitalized small business essentially selling Mm -hmm. a low net margin product, which is what CPG is. It's a very terrifying business to be in. I can't say I I would automatically recommend it to somebody. <laughs> I've always said that if I wasn't a consultant, which is, you know, a fairly high margin business to be in, but you know, I would run a bar. Yeah. Because the margins on the alcohol, you moves. really can't lose. Right. And you only need to have one or two bartenders at a time. So there's no staff and right. no margin. The problem is the bar every 10 feet in a big city. So <laughs> it's, right, right. That, it's actually not that easy. <laughs> But the business model is really attractive. It's really attractive. <laughs> But my client's business model is horrendous, you know? Mm-hmm. And so how do you scale, given that you don't, you're always going to have less money than a Kraft Foods or General Mills or Hershey's, right? You, you can't launch the way they launch products. Uh, and you can't launch it. You can't, you know, apply massive amounts of private equity money either, not when you start. So that's where the book starts because 90% five percent of founders of cbg brands are in that position right and even some of the serial entrepreneurs um, are in that position because the first couple failed they didn't make any money so yeah. that's like a third business is their hail mary to try to get that's very common in right industry um, in part because people aren't getting access to the right insights early on i think you know there's no go-to place to you know, how do you think through your product design, your product development, blah, 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 blah. And, and we basically discovered that the, the normative path to $100 million since the Great Recession was this exponential growth curve. Like 75% of the brands that got there used it to get there. Mm. And then we're like, okay, this, this is not random. Science tells us this is not random. We basically uncovered one thing. One is that they kept their distribution unbelievably low in the first three, three, four, five years. So low that it just defies all logic in consumer packaged goods, where you're, where you know a traditionally trained person is like, well, okay, got my product, to do my like, sell sheet, okay, call Walmart, call Target, call CVS, you know, it's just like, get it right. into 150,000 stores as fast as we can, right? Because that's yeah. how a big company does a lot. right? You know, they want to get, they plan it to get into 200,000 stores in like nine to 12 months. That that's what a typical launch would be, and they have a team to do it, they have the resources, they'll pay their way in yada yada but my clients can't do that right
1: i mean they've already got relationships with all those
0: yeah, different yeah. well they have a yeah i mean when when Kraft foods calls the senior vice president of grocery yeah. you know, i'm sorry of dairy at walmart they pick right. up the phone they pick up the phone <laughs> and, and they sorry. rearrange the shelf the way they wanted to you know yeah i mean it just you, you get treatment different yes. treatments so my clients have none of that, even if they had raised $10 million they don't get.
1: They that don't trade. have that access. And either. that's
0: where I start the book. I'm like, don't, don't get cocky because you got a million or two million raised. You're no different than a guy with no money. Yeah. You really are.
1: So this, this distribution, keeping distribution low, does that correlate to geographically picking an area initially and not being spread too thin
0: nationwide? It usually does in my business, unless you are in a weird okay. market. And some of my clients are... There's some Midwestern markets where I would honestly just say, you can live here if you'd like to, but don't start. Right. I see. I see. <laughs> you know, and be prepared to drive a lot. But generally speaking, yes, you want to start in, a, in your local major metropolitan area. And I tell people, and I'll show them the data because I have archived Nielsen data. I can show them privately. I can't publish it, but I can show them. It's like, look, look at all these brands that got to a million, $2 million in, their, in one city. So don't tell me this can't be done. I'm telling you it can be mm-hmm. done. Um, so just because you keep meeting people who are like, oh, I can't get any more sales and at 125000 it's because, well, they don't understand the best practices. or their product is lo- lousy.
1: Right. And, and let's talk about that in a moment. But I can see where it's easy. It's easy to say, oh, well, well we just need a brand new market. So let's go to Austin now. You know, and, and there's no. Yeah.
0: Because that's, it's like fourth grade math, right? I do addition right? I I add markets or I add accounts. And so it's this accretive notion of growth. You know, it's,
1: it's sexy and it's exciting when you tell me that my packaged item, my packaged sauce, whatever it can be in every shelf and every Publix in the Southeast and every Kroger, that's exciting to me, right? Oh yeah. People get,
0: um, people get door lust, Henry. I mean, there's the door lust is what they call it, right? Oh, Give me in all these stores. I'm in all these shelves. And I think for the founder who's been very lonely on this journey, that not making any money, I can see why they get sucked into that. But, you know, I start the book off with the data. I mean, there's tons of data science the first 10 pages. I mean, this is, you can't find this stuff anywhere else. Uh, so, and it, it just, it's brutal. I mean, the numbers are very clear. There's no statistical correlation whatsoever uh, between adding doors or distribution and long-term growth. There's none. It's a perfect dead zero. In other words, you might grow, you might not. Yeah, that's, that's the thing that's so
1: counterintuitive, so counter to what
0: we've been fed to believe, yeah? Uh, well, and what salespeople believe. But so the book's inspiration was that the key pattern of these skate ramp brands, Henry, was that they, they kept a distribution, they kept a lid on it, a constraint on it but they had phenomenal same-store velocity growth on an annualized basis. And that
1: then, let's, let's go to the, you know, we've been talking about one part of this four-part approach that you lay out in the book. You right. spend, like you, I think you said, a third of the book on the f- part one, which is designing to command a premium. So I want to dive into that a little bit because that's where you see people make the most mistake. Instead of focusing on how quickly can I get to all these doors and get nationwide, that's not what I should be focusing on in those first- one to three to four years, right yes so talk tell me about that and what you've seen are you, you were talking about this in episode fifteen. I was listening to of your podcast okay, Thank um, you for listening yeah, no, it's great a great show, and you talk about you know the century disaster sometimes that you experience with brands when we 're talking about a food brand here as an example and launching prematurely as, and the whole uh, the, the whole attitude that you express is that oh we'll fix that later but. That's wrong,
0: right? <laughs> you need. You might need a lot of money to paper over the um, fundamental design flow. behind that approach. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I'll be honest. You know, there's there's a way to grow a mediocre commodity uh, if you can if you can afford to do it at a Walmart price. I see. That's a whole other route. And there's a small crowd of old dudes that generally run co-manufacturing facilities, and others they own the food right. plants, and they do that. Um, very few of them scale their businesses, but some have. Um, but see, because they own the plant, they can make money selling at a Walmart price. And then they they just use either sales or some advertising and paper over the, the fact that it's actually not a very interesting product. Now, those businesses don't tend to last or they, or they scale to like 10 million and hit a wall. But the, the reason I wrote a third book about product design, Henry, was that, and the one thing I learned um, even before I wrote my book was that. I mean, when I wrote, when I was doing my dissertation, was the, you know writing is really editing. And I think that applies to anything that's a creative process. It's the editing
1: that's that's where the value is. Yeah.
0: What I tell people to do in the first part of the book, by laying out the cruel sort of list of things you need to nail, is that you've got to accept that the first draft is probably wrong of your product, but you won't know what's wrong. Or what you got what you misunderstood until you get it out there at low scale. So another reason you sell it in your local market, you get it into a hundred stores, not 10,000, not even a thousand. You get a hundred stores, you can get in 20 stores and just get relationships going with your consumers any way that you can getting that feedback about what they like and what they don't like. And it's actually more important to not listen to the whining or complaining. It's more important to listen to the patterns about what they like. Okay. Um, and the reason for that is that in the world that I'm in, most people aren't going to like it because it's expensive. I mean, these are premium priced goods. They generally have 10 to 15% market share in any category. It's like most people are so not interested in a, in a cliff bar. They just don't care because there's another protein bar for a third, the cost right next to it. And they're fine with that. You know, what is it that your, your repeat purchasers or your loyal consumers uh, like about you? And is that actually what, you thought it was going to be, and it often is not, Henry. That's what's amazing. So when I work with clients, even with ten million dollar businesses, I'm having to do research for it. We do research on the consumers. We collect the insights. I bring some of my, you know, theoretical models and other stuff and behavioral understanding, and we, they, we're. I'm often surprising them about what's driving the business. But but until you really get at the why, you don't understand how to make big, expensive investments in advertising ramping up the stores into new channels and geographies at, at a very fast pace, right? When you want to start doing that, you really need to know what is going on. And when on. you say the
1: why, the, the <laughs> why they
0: like my product. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why, why has this thing been growing or succeeding is something you can't just assume. Is that one of the things I've measured to
1: determine I'm ready now? Now I'm ready to grow, get up that ramp?
0: Yeah, so the earlier you can do that, the better odds you have of being able to, if you have to make big tweaks, I just, I'm working with a client right now who started with a product that was all about traceability. I'm not going to mention the category, but you know, all about traceability. And it was all about the traceability of one key ingredient. Mm -hmm. And I told, and I basically sat down with her and and it didn't work the first time she launched it. Like there wasn't, it would only sell when she went to the store and like handed it out and then it would just collapse. And so I'm like, well, that's not, you know, premium products with good design, they kind of, they do about 50% of the marketing work themselves on the shelf. And design, (laughs) when you say that
1: then, so design must include packaging as well then.
0: Packaging, the symbolism, and of course now, you know, coming back to my old field of anthropology, right? So what are the the implicit messages people are saying by wearing that kind of clothing, by talking that kind of way, by avoiding that kind of person or not this person, right? Um, We're constantly sending symbolic signals like that all through our world. In the house, outside of the house, so we're doing the same things when we when we buy products, right? And, and sometimes those signal those um, those signals are really connecting to things that we care about or we aspire to care about. So getting the symbolism on the package right is key because you want to command a premium, but you have to have something that's innovative and modern. That will will attract a person willing to pay a premium price, and they can tell all their friends that this is the better new way of right. doing things. In in soup in crackers, in whatever, or whatever like. it might be. Right? Yeah. Right. And that, that has driven billion dollar businesses, just that basic sociological principle right there, which is I want to be seen as modern. I see. Right now. Th- and this, this is goes all the way into the middle class, Henry. It's not just, rich people but that, that, that is
1: counterintuitive to what we, we talked about earlier about the brand that has been around for 50 years. It terrifies them. Henry. Sure. Okay, so part one is about designing to command a premium. We've done a little bit of a dive on that as much as we have time for, but there's a lot to that. A third of the book, again, is dedicated to that. (laughs) Part two is managing a small experiment. Is that what we had talked about keeping distribution low and ideally geographically um, concise? Is that what you're talking about there with managing a small experiment? I think of it when I read that and studied it, I thought it was kind of similar to the MVP approach where you start mm. small. Is that what you're what you're talking about there?
0: I am. You know, I think the smaller the better. I think if you're inexperienced in, in the industry or any industry, right? If you're starting a restaurant, if you want to create a restaurant chain, obviously you gotta nail the first yeah. one. <laughs> and, and and then the funny thing is you have to completely nail the second one or or you don't have a viable Ooh, chain, right? Exactly. Like if you can't repeat it, if you can't even restaff and create the same experience, then it's over. So you have to start small. But but what that section in the book talks about is really the key performance indicators which are specific to consumer packaged goods right so and these are some of these are are well understood by more senior entrepreneurs in the in the field or experienced ones they understand this uh but the people i wrote the book for they don't they're not hearing this message so things like making sure that your same store sales are growing right uh, and and doing what it takes to get the data to know that i mean i often have people tell me well they have like a three million dollar business they haven't bought any cash register data, and I'm sitting there going, are you nuts? How have you been making decisions? Well, I just look at our case shipment, and it looks okay. Um, But they don't don't realize how mediocre they're performing on the average store in specific accounts because they haven't really gotten Mm -hmm. the correct data set to say, oh, wow, that account was only sort of okay because there are literally three stores driving the whole performance. The rest of the inventory is just sitting there at the other 80 stores. I see. (laughs) And I sit there, and I go, so you're just – Letting inventory sit there basically in a chain you shouldn't be in when that inventory could be like accelerating your business over here. Right. right? If it was in right, So, this is you've got to have data, right? You've got to have the data and you have to just put it on a credit card. I don't know what else to say, but this is too important to not get data. I see so many folks using poor data or very little data and just trying to scrape their way up this ramp. And those are often the people that. They don't understand the mistake they've caused themselves until it's just way too late. Right. Okay.
1: Part three is fine tuning the the conversion playbook. And, and so introduce that, if you would.
0: So, classical uh, marketing theory talks about a, a process in which, in the face of a new product or a new brand, people have to become aware of it, and then they have to actually consider it viable. Mm-hmm. Like, there's some reason I might be interested in that, that's, that hooking process is what I help people with the symbolic signaling. Cause that's really about language and it's often on the package and it's often screwed up. <laughs> so they have to get in the consideration that, and then you have to, you got to get them to try it. Right. So you gotta them over the price hurdle. Will they pay a premium price? Cause those are people I, I help. It's a very difficult thing to get people, a lot of people over that premium price yeah. and then they try it. And then you have to get them to buy it again. Now, if you sell it retail, the getting them to buy it again is actually a lot harder than it sounds because people's shopping rhythms are not from the fifties anymore, where they literally, (laughs) they're like a robot and they literally go back and retrace the same steps at the exact same local supermarket every week, right? Right? And my my mom used to do Mm -hmm. that in the eighties. This was a real thing. Oh, sure. One store store shopping was like a real thing in the eighties. So it doesn't exist anymore. So you just don't know when they may find you at Costco. I mean, or they may find you at one mm. supermarket, but it was a weird deal that sucked from there, or they were just on that side of town, but their main store is actually over there. Yeah. <laughs> so, so and you're not distributed there. Oops. You yeah. know. Right. So are they really going to re- go all the way across town to find you again, like at the King Supers, when they actually spend their time at Safeway in Denver? No. So you get a lot of repeat. There's a lot of challenges to getting that second sale. And one of them is distribution, but the other one is just, I don't even remember what it's called, Henry. I, when I was doing my research with Whole Foods, it was amazing to me that what we used to do, our stock interview st- structure was we sit in the living room, we talk for an hour about their lifestyle, and yada, yada, we, we soften them up, as they say, <laughs> like the good interrogator. Lots of open-ended questions, get them talking, get them comfortable. And we also get all their aspirations, all their ideals. We basically get them to claim every possible moral stance they can about food <laughs> yeah. and everything. Else. And then we basically run it through the bullshit test, which is show me your pantry. What, what, you, what are you really buying? <laughs> right. And it was absolutely hilarious every time. Like after about 50 of these, you really start to see the patterns before they even I come, Right. It. So one of the things we learned during that interview process was people couldn't remember the names of brands they had just discovered and loved. Okay. I mean, I mean, they had no clue or they would misspell them or mispronounce them, but they would be raving about these things Mm -hmm. because the symbolism on the package they got, they remember that, keto or whatever it was, or one gram carb or the flavor was so amazing or whatever. They'll remember something, but rarely the name. So we would have to take them literally back to the pantry. They'd have to dig for it and go, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Cliff bar. Right. So yeah. <laughs> and we'd be sitting there going, this is a nightmare for brand owners. So that's what you mean by that by the
1: conversion, converting that first buy to a to a customer.
0: Right. With new brands, getting the trial is premium price is a big enough challenge. But right. then but getting that second, third, fourth, and fifth purchase, because until you've purchased it. I don't know, three to five times, Henry, I don't, you really don't develop like a habit. And habitual consumption is what that section of the book is about. And you need, in my industry, uh, and it might be true actually, even I'm thinking about for rest, for local restaurants, you need at least half of your revenue every week or month coming from habitual people. Okay. Because if, if you're constantly having, if 99% of your business is convincing new people to try you, you are literally just riding a house of cards. Yeah, it's to not let let
1: sustainable. You. <laughs> Plus, I gotta keep spending on that. You know, the only reason you come in is because you have to have a coupon in your hand. I gotta keep putting that coupon in your hand or whatever the other.
0: Oh yeah, well that's the worst. Is I deal with people who who succumb to over couponing early on, and they have, they have what we call weak purchase intent trial in in marketing, uh, and and that means, well yeah sure if you're gonna give me the premium thing for the same price as Lay's, hell yeah, but well, they'll never buy it again. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. It's like, what, what did that accomplish? It moved some product, it made your numbers tick yeah. up. But you're not building a business that way, you are just fooling yourself on your P&L. And I see, I meet a lot of people who, who get involved in that. So that, this part of the book is about what are, the, what are the things that you do out of the store to make sure that, that you are boosting the recall boosting memorability, getting more and more people to repeat, right? And a lot of that has to do with world-class marketing, targeted marketing, geo-targeted marketing, field marketing, sampling with the right people in the right neighborhoods, in the right stores. It's exhausting. It's um, not particularly cheap per se, but it works.
1: It's, but it's a lot, hell of a lot cheaper than trying to... Oh, it's cheaper than average. Uh, yeah,
0: exactly, than trying to yeah. do money at trying so to get because, all the stores. Because if you have a, yeah, if you have a good product like Kind Bar did when they started doing this, it's funny. Dan Lebeski just posted on LinkedIn last week that he was initially opposed to sampling as a big strategy yeah. in 2006. That's funny, because it wasn't in his book. In his book, he talks about how oh, awesome sampling is. But in <laughs> this one, he confessed that I actually, I had some board members who told me that I should do that. And yeah, and so we, we he's like, we moved our sampling budget from 80,000 to 800,000 in one year, and we got like a 10X return. Wow. Now, he had he had a product where basically everybody repeated. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it was almost 100%. Yeah.
1: Because they got the design right
0: so well early on. Yeah. Well, it's just trail mix and a rectangle, Henry. It's, you already, you, of course, you love it. Everybody loves it. <laughs> it really isn't even new. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> it was very brilliant. So it's was like, it, it was already pre sold. Yeah. Um, you know, all he did was make it look oh wow. That looks like real food, but the cliff bar looks like I don't know. Yeah. I talk about those case studies cuz that was one of the patterns we saw in the skate ramp brands after the recessions. They all they were aggressive samplers.
1: Okay. So, James, got to get parts 1, 2 and 3 down before, and we're just going to touch on it lightly because of time before I move on to part four, which is now is when I accelerate to scale. Yes. And that could be for a lot of these brands with a lot of the types of businesses we're talking about, could be a three year, four year, five year process before I get there. Is that, is that typical?
0: Oh yeah, it very much is.
1: The other thing that's hard, you talked about this in episode 25 that I listened to about, you know, the, the reason it stood out because this is something I'm challenged with in business in general the unicorn is what gets all of the attention right (laughs) so so we think oh i'm gonna have a unicorn that's uh, what i've birthed here and so onward
0: well i think the problem is that the the trade media like many media outlets is more focused on entertainment i think than Mm -hmm. than sort of in-depth analysis right and that that because that drives ad revenue so you know all even the even the business outlets are pretty much like that so they cover all the unicorn stories and i think if you're not if you're new to business or this the business that i'm in you're already going to have a fake pattern, a false pattern analysis based on those stories. And, and some of those stories delete like the backstory.
1: We've touched on that as we've been having this conversation, but, but summarize for us how you serve your clients through premium growth solutions, the, the services that you offer.
0: So I work with established early stage companies, uh, usually a million or more in trailing revenue. And I, I work on exponential growth planning. So either they're performing that way already, or we're going to get the plan together to make that happen. Um, and usually they've got some kind of funding to finance that, or or they're working on getting it. So I, most of my clients are in food, beverage, and personal care, including skincare.
1: For the rest of us, we need to read the book.
0: <laughs> and the book again is called Ramping Your Brand, How to Ride the
1: Killer CPG Growth Curve. Find that on, on Amazon, but also there's going
0: to be a landing page we're going to set up that uh, is a good place to go to learn more, right? Yes. Uh, I am going to. Uh, the book is on discount right now as you're listening to this. If you're listening to the show air date, um, it will be on sale on Amazon and the Kindle will be absurdly low price. Good, good stuff. <laughs> so you can go to rampingyourbrand.com to get links or learn more. Uh, besides your book,
1: Is there a book that comes to mind that you would recommend, especially in light of the conversation that we had?
0: One book I recommend folks getting into what I would call capital expenditure-intensive businesses like restaurants or packaged goods um, is a book called Launching New Ventures by Kathleen Allen. It's actually kind of a dry business textbook, except that it's actually pretty good. (laughs) What she can help guide you is creating a really well-thought-out business plan. All right, we'll
1: wrap it up uh, with these last two questions. W- what's one thing you want to stick away from this conversation we had about ramping our CPG brand?
0: I would urge any small business you know, listening to your show, Henry, to really, as when you're starting, listen to your early consumers, get their feedback. What do they like about what you're doing? What are they, what are they really attracted to about what you're doing? Um, be patient in that process don't try to grow too fast and follow where your happy consumers are taking you even if it causes you to change a significant amount about in terms of what you'll be offering
1: very clearly and simply put because because again it's it's so counterintuitive like we talked about that I'm supposed to grab as much market share as fast as possible that's what we think we're supposed to do as cpg products like we're talking about and so that that was the huge takeaway for me i i say it as you know go slow to go fast yes Tell us where you want us to go online again to find out more.
0: You can go to premiumgrowthsolutions.com if you want to learn more about what I do uh, in the crazy world of premium consumer packaged goods. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful.
1: Thank you, James. And we'll have a link to that on the show notes page as well. This has been a fascinating conversation. Could spend another hour just talking about the anthropological stuff. Fascinating. (laughs) Thanks for taking the time to be on my show today. Thank you, Henry. This is Henry Lopez. And thanks for listening to this episode of The How a Business. My guest today again was Dr. James Richardson. We release new episodes every Monday morning and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at our website, thehowofbusiness.com. Or you can also just text the word biz, B-I-Z, to 31996. Thanks for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.